This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Bub's Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen, and Bub's provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witnessed personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi, and his friends Sean and TJ founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. 
I myself have used them for several years and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their multivitamin elite, their whey protein, the super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. Now, Scott is a career Green Beret and is also one of the men behind Task Force Pineapple, one of the organizations that was evacuating Afghanis after our withdrawal. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the military, the industrial military complex, some incredible human stories that emerged from the evacuation, rooftop leadership, playwriting, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 650 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. Enjoy. Well, Scott, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thanks for having me. I'm really, really glad to be here, James. Thank you. So where on planet Earth are we finding you on this fine summer's morning? So I'm actually in Mount Sterling, Kentucky, and uh, we're here with my, my mom and dad live here. But my brother, Travis, is, is, uh, lives in Australia with his family. And so they, they made their way over we don't get to see them very much. And so my boys, my son came in from the army and my other two sons came in and their kids are here. So we really had just a true family reunion over the last couple of weeks. And now everyone's getting ready to leave. So it's kind of a, kind of a downtime, but um, just super grateful to have had a couple of weeks with family. It's hard to get these days. Yeah, I can relate. My mine is strewn all over uh, Europe. So at one point where we were in France, Germany, Portugal, England, and then myself in America. So we're actually all converging in November, and I can't wait. Yeah. Now, where are you? Uh, I live in Ocala, Florida, so right in the heart of the state. We're like right – I'm in Tampa is my home. Yeah, so you're down the road from me. 
Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. We'll have to get together sometime. Absolutely. So starting at the beginning of your timeline then, so tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, so I was born in Clifton Forge, Virginia, which is up in the mountains, the Appalachian Mountains. My mom and dad are both from Western North Carolina, deep in the Smoky Mountains. And I really call that home. I always have. It's where my family hails from. But we moved all over. I have one brother, Travis. He's four years younger, younger than me. Uh, we moved all over, though. My dad was a, worked for the United States Forest Service. So he was a uh, wildlife and timber um, forester, forest ranger, but also fought big wildland fires. And so our travels took us wherever the, the winds blew and the fires were and the timber was. And so we grew up in a lot of logging towns all over the south and the southeast I decided it and my mom was a school teacher and taught school her entire career. So I grew up the, the child of civil servants, uh, two individuals who really taught my brother and me that the importance of service, service above self and, you know, just trying to play a game bigger than yourself. And, uh, yeah, a lot of that time was in Mount Ida as in Arkansas. And uh, that's actually where I decided to become a green beret at about 14 years old, a, a green beret walked into our soda shop and, from that point on, I met this guy's name was Mark. It, I knew from then on, that's what I was going to do. So uh, I traveled around, moved around a lot, but I always kind of knew what I was going to do. All right. Well, starting with your dad, I mean, I know if you're aware, I'm a firefighter myself, transitioned out the uh, profession, but one of the most unique perspectives of fires themselves, but also maybe the env environmental element that's contributing to them are our wildland fire service and obviously the forest rangers. So in your discussions with your dad, did he have any observations of the fires worsening in the areas that he fought? Yeah, for sure. That's a great question. You know, I'm, I'm very passionate about my dad's work. Uh, he's, in my opinion, he's one of the last of the true woodsmen. And I remember growing up, James, all of these hotshot crews would come in to wherever we were living and they would, they would be bunking around the place. And my brother, Travis and I just, we were just enamored with these firefighters, man. They were bigger than life, you know, included smoke jumpers. And, and what I, what I remember though, and what I remember my dad talking about as he got older was, and, and he ascended to a pretty high level in the, the wildland firefighting. Um, he, he ran an area command team and, and, and did a lot of, you know, high level stuff, but he was always, a, he was always, a, he was always a line man. I mean, he was always had a, the, the, the mind of a hotshot fighter. And um, he, I always remember him talking about, and he still does about how, how, how these fires have evolved into mega fires. And because we have taken away the ability to manage the forests, we, you know, the fuel has become so, thick and and it's and yet and then you have the proximity of humans to these fuel sources now and all of that it's just a, it's just a recipe for disaster and and now you have these these big mega fires that are just you know obviously devastating but we don't really have the means to deal with them the resources and the way that the forest service and other park service have dealt with it in the past i think they're overwhelmed and outmatched and at that I don't see that changing anytime soon. So if, I don't know if that answers your question, but it is a big concern for my father and a lot of the old timers is what's happening with fire in our woods right now. Yeah. Well, I hear the same two variables over and over again. I mean, I think there's an element of maybe 
not allowing someone to build, you know, right in the heart of, of a dense woodland or just understand they're going to be written off. God forbid there's some, you know, catastrophic event, but also the ability for people to clear woods to backfire and do these things that may be a nuisance for the town when they're doing it, but ultimately will stop that town from being burnt down in the future. Yeah. And of course, you know, the problem is no one cares about that until they do, you know, no one cares about that until they do. And that's, um, that's the other thing is that guys like you are, I think, thrown into the fray, um, when fire approaches these homes, all of a sudden now you're having to put your life on the line and your buddy's lives on the line um, because measures weren't taken in the first place or because homes were, were, were built right in the, the middle of woodlands. I don't know. It's a really complex problem, but I, I, I think it's one of those things that it's, it's a hard conversation that needs to happen because um, I'm afraid we're going to lose more firefighters than and we're going to we're going to we're going to have more of these catastrophic resource losses of timber if we don't start to to figure this out. Absolutely. Now, the other thing I think is the the lesser discussed element of the fire service of the wildland firefighters and the mental and physical health issues that they face, especially some of these long deployments that they have where they're on very little sleep, they're, you know, physically, you know, working for hours and hours. Of course, they're coming across some scenes that are, you know, tragic, whether it's humans or, or the wildlife that they lose. Was there any elements of that that he kind of was was able to storytell as you were growing up? Yeah, for sure. You know, dad spent his whole adult life, almost 43 years, um, you know, dealing with varying forms of wildland fire and all of its forms and, you know, its share of loss. And my dad, honestly, is, is my, the guy I look to for leadership. He's, when I think about being a leader, he really, everything, everything that he, he learned on the fires, he really tried to pour into my brother and me. And it really helped. It really, it really taught me a lot about crisis management and dealing with hard times and low resources and, and imminent danger and those kinds of things. And, and yeah, I, um, I know dad certainly suffered his share of losses, doesn't talk a lot about it, but, you know, he trained and mentored a lot of young firefighters. That's the thing that uh, I love. And they still contact him, man. They still reach out to him and they've gone on to become very, very prominent firefighters themselves. But dad really poured himself into, into the, to the knowledge and, and capabilities of other firefighters, regardless of the losses, regardless of the challenges. And he, I'll send these to you. If you'll remind me, I want to uh, get your email address, but he, he came up with, he, he went down to Atlanta when he was um, midway in his career and he gave a talk to firefighters at the time. I think he was the head of a, I want to say it was an area command team, but I'm not certain. I'm pretty sure it was, but they asked him to come down and talk to a room full of firefighters. And he, on the way down, he wrote uh, 10 rules of the road for firefighting or for wildland firefighting. And like they are so good to this day. I still carry them. But what was really cool was one of the guys that was in that room was the future chief of the forest service. And um, he still carries, he still carries those 10 rules of the road with him. And they're just real common sense uh, things that you and I both know, but we just need to keep top of mind when we're facing hard times. And uh, I'll, I'll flip them over to you 
but they're just a lot of a lot of people in the in the in the protective services seem to really like it so i'll i'll share it with you well thank you i'll uh, i'll put them onto the web page for this episode so i appreciate yeah, it sure. yeah. so just staying on on that generation for a second your mother a career educator again yeah. what has been her um perception of the metamorphosis or or maybe even devolution of education throughout her career it's been tough. She's really, she left the, the education world, I think a little bit more demotivated, if that's a word, than, than she deserved to be. She, she poured her heart and soul into education. And I think she didn't like the direction that it was going when she, when she left. I think she felt like we were not giving the kids what they needed to include discipline and structure. And that a lot was being ceded to, the the kids in a way that was not healthy for them and you know my mom just like my dad she's pretty old school she's an amazing teacher and same way kids that she taught in the 80s still reach out to her who are c-suite executives and politicians and they all talk about the same thing they talk about the way my mom ran her classroom and led her kids and she finally got to a point i think where she felt like she couldn't do that anymore where it was so bureaucratic and so rigid in terms of just top-down um, political correctness and everything run amok that she couldn't teach. She couldn't teach these kids. And so she didn't, you know, she didn't um, walk away. She retired. But I think, I think she would have rather have gone out with a, a better feeling about where education was heading. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be in her class in our little town of Mount Ida, Arkansas. We only had, I think we had 36 people in my graduating class. <laughs> she was one of our, she taught business and accounting and typing. And so I was in her class and it was, it was mortifying, man, like being in a class with your mom, but she was super cool and she was a great teacher. And I know I'm probably prejudiced for saying that, but um, she was fantastic. It's, uh, but having your mom as your teacher is a, is a pretty, pretty jaw-dropping experience. I don't know that I'd ever want to do that again, but, but I got to see her in action and she was phenomenal. And, and, and uh, I think a lot of people are where they are in this world right now because of her and the other educators that, that really carried a heavy load. Well, what an unusual perspective she must have had on typing too, because I'm sure when she entered and started teaching that, there was probably a very narrow-minded a, a kind of perspective that that's women's work that you know administrators yeah. and secretary and look at us now none of us can escape typing so right and my mom you know is she is in terms of an empowered woman she really showed my brother and me what that looks like and in in a healthy way and, and she lived into it every day she she always pushed the boundaries and because my dad was gone all the time fighting fire you know, she had to play roles in the house that were far beyond certainly the typical roles in that small town. And she was, you know, she really pushed the envelope and, and she really, I, I learned as much or more about leadership and doing the right thing when nobody's looking and, 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 and culture as I did from her, as I did from my dad, uh, just observing her, not just in the classroom, but how she led our family when my father was gone. And um, that carried over into our military family, I think, in a lot of ways. So you ended up being a very you know, high achiever from a physical side as well. When you were at school age, what sports and athletics were you doing? I was a runt. 
growing up. I, I mean, I was a serious runt. I was small, um, undersized, big time, very skinny and short, but I, I loved sports. And my dad was very similar in his build when he was my age. And so he had overcome a lot of physical um, challenges to, to, to play competitive football and baseball. And he encouraged my brother and me from a very early age that if you did the reps, did the work, you could overcome your stature and, and contribute. And he really pushed us to, to do that through sports, not just sports, but so I played football, basketball, baseball. Um, I, I was not, I mean, I was okay. I was like the sixth man in basketball, um, Walked away from football when I got to be 10th grade. I was just too small. There was no, I was just going to get crushed. But I played a lot of baseball as well. Did pretty well there, um, but did not play college. Didn't, didn't really desire to play in college. I knew at that point I was going Army. I knew I was going Special Forces, ROTC in college. So, but sports, what I think I took away from sports more than anything, James, was learning how to navigate the world, learning how to work with teams, and learning how to overcome physical challenges to, to play at a higher level that probably more than anything else, you know, reps and practice and relationship to practice really, really helped me a lot as I um, went into the military and special operations. Well, that kind of reminds me of um, something that I talk about a lot at the moment with this whole participation trophy discussion. Now that's yeah. spat out, you know, usually by portly men and lazy boys, to be honest, but that aside, as a complete disregard, and I think it, it can be received so poorly by our younger men and women as, well, then why bother if I'm not gonna, if I'm not gonna win? So you're only validating if I'm on the podium is, is the message I'm getting versus, I mean, I understand giving, you know, medals out for zero effort is, is not acceptable at all, but being part of a team you might be the worst team in the whole fucking league but you're part of a team and you're waking up every day and you're training and you're dealing with loss there's so much value to that and i think we're in danger if we allow this kind of you know two-dimensional participation trophy to to kind of permeate the ear holes of some of our young that the message is going to be received in the wrong way seeking discomfort in all types of sports is completely you know valid um and that is a separate discussion from i think where the participation trophy discussion began which is yes patting people on the back for not doing any any you know no effort whatsoever yeah great points um and i think you and i are fully aligned on this i raised three boys who played ball in florida and you know it's that's a different game baseball in florida but I will tell you, one of the biggest lessons I had to learn from sports was how to sit my ass on the bench. And, and, and it, despite having worked hard and done all the things I was supposed to do, here I am still sitting on the bench and, and recognizing that, okay, I didn't do enough. I didn't work hard enough that even with all of that, it was not enough. So that for me was really eye-opening and recognizing that there no one's going to give you a damn thing in life. And there is no way, even if you get these participation trophies, the reason that it's so disingenuous and so harmful to children, I think, is that when they step into the world, that's not the way it works. And then all of a sudden now you're having to figure this out at 18, 19, 20. 
And that's, you know, we've, we've, instead of giving a runway for our kids to take off, now they're in a fighter jet at the end of the runway, just doing, you, you know, donuts. Uh, and, and so I, for me, it was learning to sit the bench. It was learning to go in the game with six minutes left and have to find a way to contribute. And it might be, you take a charge and then you're back on the bench again. Uh, so that you're right. And, and just being part of something bigger than yourself and finding a way to show up and play your position, whatever that is. Um, I definitely got that in high school sports and, and it carried on all the way through my career. Now you mentioned ROTC. My son is in JROTC at the moment, army JROTC. Um, and, uh, I, I'm amazed at the impact that these, in this case, men that are, that are leading it are having on these these young men and women. Uh, they just had a, a, a camp, a one-week camp in Florida. I think that week it was 106 out there, and they were in you know tents getting stormed on and doing and you know, repelling all these amazing things. But the power of that program in, again, high school as a mentorship element, it, I've seen it with my own eyes. So walk me through... Um, that moment when you were 14 years old that you decided that the army and then what made you go through to ROTC and let's talk about that program. Again, being really small, you develop a certain way of navigating the world. And I, the way I navigated the world is I kind of just stayed in the shadows. I wasn't seen a whole lot. I got along with everyone. I learned to do that moving around, but, but I wasn't a real prominent leader or, or individual. And I wanted to be, I felt like there was more inside me. I felt like I had a lot to offer, but in that little town, once you kind of get labeled, that's it. And, and I, I, I found it very difficult to get a, get beyond it. And I spent a good bit of time alone. And when this guy came in, this guy's name was Mark and he, he was uh, bigger than life. You know, he had the, 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 the dress uniform and, 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 but it, more importantly, it was just his demeanor. He had this really um, easygoing demeanor, and yet you could tell there was something about him you didn't want to cross. And he sat with me and took the time to see me hear what forces was. And that was getting to listen to him what special forces was. And he explained to me that Green Berets, as they're called, are these individuals who who basically jump out of airplanes into foreign lands and, and, you know, immerse themselves in language and culture. All of my fam walking by here, um, immerse themselves in language and culture and the environment, and they build relationships different than, you know, the Navy SEALs, the Army Rangers and those others. They, they are relationship-based connectors, and that's how, they, that's how they operate. That's how they get things done. And that was a really powerful thing for me to be able to hear, wow, that's how, that's how business, you know, that's how these guys do business. Just listening to Mark talk about how Green Berets build relationships and how they connect in these low trust places, man, I was hooked on that. That just, to me, really resonated because it, it said to me that you could go into these places and do something at a local level and have a big impact. And I wanted to do that. I want, and I just, it just felt like it was something kind of a Lawrence of Arabia thing that I wanted to do. And so I started doing my own research. I started looking into it. There was a national geographic article from 1965 about green berets in Vietnam, working with the Montagnards. I mean, I, anything I could get my hands on to research special forces, I did. And by the time I was a junior in high school, I had already put in my ROTC 
scholarship packet. I, I knew what group I wanted to go to. I mean, I had it all mapped out. I had talked to a former, our sheriff in our town was a former Green Beret in Vietnam. So, I mean, I really did the due diligence. And fast forward into special forces, I'll show the football a little bit. Once I got in, it was hilarious because most of the guys in special forces, most of the guys in the SEALs, you'll find that that's kind of how it happened for them. Not exclusively, but a lot of them came in that way. They, they met someone at an early age or something shifted in them between 12 and 14, and it just became a, a kind of a one-track direction there. So um, that was how it went down for me. That's how I learned about it. And, and um, it was never, I never looked back after that. Well, I think, again, that speaks to the power of mentorship, and it's a theme that comes up a lot. I mean, there are definitely mentors in this JROTC program with my son, and I think there's, there's a, a double-pronged conversation. There is the, the household that maybe is missing a father figure completely, and mentors definitely are uber important there. And then there's the household where the father is there, but a mentor can fill other areas. The father may be you know, a great, great human being, but he's not everything. He's not every personality. He's not every profession. And so whether it's a gym coach or an ROTC member or you know, whoever it is, the, the, it might be the mailman who's super nice and inspires you to, to pursue a career in the mail service. But the, the power that we have in our own community to inspire and steer young men and women in the right path, I think, is, is understated so often. I agree. And I think I, I find myself talking to a lot of young people who want to go special forces or who want to go SEALs. And just talking with them about what that path is like, what, you know, I think my dad calls it leaving tracks when we leave, when we focus on our legacy and what we leave behind that's, that people are talking about 15 years after we're gone. It's one of the most impactful things we can do as leaders. And I think one way that we can leave our tracks is to really talk about, talk to kids and young people about what they're thinking and what, what they want to do. And because kids, I think, I, this generation of kids, I think, I really do believe they are the ones that are either we're going to figure this out or we're not as a nation. And I think they're the ones that are going to do it and spending the time with them to help them get their head around it and think it through. I, I, it's, it's just one of the greatest gifts that we can give. And there's whether it's your children or not. And yes, JR, JRTC is a phenomenal program. My son, my oldest son was in it. He didn't play sports. He didn't. He tried it, didn't love it. Got in JRTC and it was a complete shift. And I never in my wildest dreams thought he would go into the army, but now he's an army lieutenant. He is going special forces selection. Like he loves what he does. And if you walked it back, I guarantee you, he would tell you it was army. It was not his father as much as it was army JRTC and the mentors that he had. Um, actually, he was in um, Navy JRTC, but regardless, they were phenomenal and they made a big impact on his life. Amazing. Yeah, mine actually shifted over there because the PE program he was doing, they weren't doing any PE. <laughs> so he was getting PowerPoints and, you know, just, just random stuff. And he's like, Dad, I just wanted to, to get out there and actually exercise. So he shifted to JROTC and it was the best thing right. he did. I love it. I love it. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, and then you asked about ROTC. I, again, for me, I wanted to be an officer. And the reason I wanted to be an officer was because I, the, the, the aspect of being a special forces officer really interested me. One, being a team leader, that just, I was enamored with that. But, but I also just, for some reason, I had some really good NCOs mentor me at a young age. And they said, you know, you should think about being an SF officer. And, and because the NC, it's an NCO-based organization, it's mostly NCOs. And taking care of those guys is really important. 
making sure they have what they need, the resources they have, that they get that 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 you know people run top cover for them, and that they're not run into the ground. And I don't know. I had such an affinity for the whole mission and everything about it. I thought, yeah, that's that's what I just felt led to do was to be an SF officer and to advocate for those NCOs and warrant officers as much as I could. So that's the that's the path I took. So walk me through your journey from regular army into SF selection. And then what was it? I mean, you were a small child. I was actually a small child as well. Um, what was it that allowed you physically and mentally to endure that process when so many others rang the bell? I think that's a great question. Um, so regular army, I was terrible. I, I was assessed as a quartermaster officer, which was not um, not something that I wanted to do. I did not want to be a logistician. I wanted to be an infantryman. So I was assessed as a quartermaster officer and had to go into that line of work, which is basically supply and services. And I hated it. I hated it so bad. And I went ahead and went to ranger school and airborne school to kind of prove a point. And I did that. But then I was thrown into a supply unit and I just did not do well. I was at the bottom of the barrel in terms of how I was rated. Thankfully, uh, a guy came along and uh, offered me a, a job as a deputy, an aide to the deputy commander down in Panama, and I took it. And he was he came from a special ops background and pulled me out and put me in a special ops support unit for the rest of my time as a lieutenant, where I was able to train for selection and be around other SF NCOs. And I, I started to thrive. I started to really rise to the occasion. And... I, as I started, you know, I learned in, in ROTC in college, I had already figured out, I think because of some sports acumen, but more importantly, I learned how to push myself. I was still scrawny, still small, but I, I learned how to push myself. And I realized that I could carry a big rucksack. I could walk a long ways. I could do a lot of, if not all of the things that were demanded of me better than most, if I just focused on pushing myself and not quitting. And so I started to develop kind of just a relationship to myself on how I trained, how I pushed myself, how I thought about training and my mindset. And I got pretty emphatic about how I trained and pushed. And, and I was so driven to go to ranger school, so driven to be a jump master, so driven to be a Green Beret. I was literally obsessed. I, I was obsessed. And, and so I would train beyond my limits a lot. And I didn't do it smartly. One of the big regrets I have right now is I, my body falls apart at 53, but I did, I did learn how to really push myself and, and reach levels that I probably shouldn't have reached. And that served me well in ranger school. It served me even. So I had picked that up in arm in ROTC with the ranger challenge competition and other things. And then once I got on, once I got out of the quartermaster unit, James, and and onto a path of special forces selection and everything that went with it, I did pretty well. And and I I, I continued to surround myself with really competent NCOs and officers who pushed me. And it um, after a while, I'm sure you know this firefighting, you start to figure out how to train and how to push yourself, and you learn that it's all pretty much the same game every time. And, and, and once you learn how to get the most out of yourself and how to talk to yourself and how to push through, um, it doesn't make it any easier, but you do learn to trust the process. And at some point I learned to trust the process. And I think it was pretty early in my career 
ranger school was a big test for me. And once I got my ranger tab, I, I, I figured out how to, how to trust the process and just rinse and repeat. Well, again, going back to your mother's perspective for a second, it's amazing how when you find the right why in your life, how you can go from a substandard student to a phenomenal student. I saw that myself. I was a straight C student in, in school, in high school in England. And then when I entered the fire service and paramedic school, it was straight A's and nothing had changed. My brain was the same brain, but my understanding, my hands-on learning element and, and my you know, the burning why, which was, okay, now lives depend on my knowledge, totally shifted my ability. And then that capacity to learn, I think it was amplified versus the kind of being talked at element that I'd experienced in the classroom when I was younger. That's something I talk about a lot too with rooftop leadership. And we, the, the, the approach that we take to leadership is, is, is derived from the Green Beret approach of understanding human terrain and human nature and how humans take action. And Understanding that from a science perspective, humans are, we're all meaning seeking, meaning assigning creatures, full stop. Every single human on the planet seeks and assigns meaning to what they do. And we're the only mammals that truly do that. And I think as leaders today in these really complex times, whether it's parenting, whether it's leading teams or leading ourselves, we've got to start paying more attention to why, to the why, to the, to the purpose of what we do, because even my father, who is just off camera here, he's endured two bouts with cancer and most recently a stroke and a debilitating stroke, by the way. But yet he has managed to reacquire purpose after each one of these debilitating blows. Right now, his big passion is restoring the functionally extinct American chestnut tree. Uh, and James, he's so driven by that, that like to watch this guy like get up and hobble to the podium and give a Ted talk, you know, like, but, but he doesn't, he doesn't see that because he's driven by that passion. And it is such a powerful component. It's rocket fuel to how we lead others. If we can help people tap into their why their purpose and, and, and really connect with it and see it and then help them arrive at it, man, it's one of the most powerful things, most generous things we can do as a leader is to hold space while people can connect to their why or, or to hold space and help them achieve it. Because like you said, once you found it, man, it was off to the races. And that's when we really start to see people play at their highest level. Well, speaking of chestnuts, that I think I've got my, my um, knowledge right. It's been a long, long time since I was a child, but I think it was a chestnut tree. We used to play a game in England called Conkers where I believe it was the chestnuts when they fell, you would thread a piece of string through them. I think you'd boil them first. I forget now. But anyway, and, and the game would be you take it in turns to whack each other's conquer, and then whichever one exploded first, the other one was a winner. But I'm almost certain that was the, the British I'm chestnut. Sure it was. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cousin to the American chestnut. I have no doubt that that's what it was. Brilliant. All right, well then... I know your career like straddles 9-11. That's always an, a, an interesting perspective as far as, you know, before and after. A kind of parallel tangent. When I started this podcast, I had seen the impact of drug prohibition through a firefighter and paramedic's eyes, you know, through the homelessness and the, you know, the overdoses and the gang violence and all these things that we see on our streets here. Early on in these conversations, when I spoke to people in the military, it was kind of there wasn't a lot of discussion about that whole topic. Um, but then as things have gone on and as I think really some of these, you know, so-called illegal drugs are the very things that are helping our veterans with with some of the mental health challenges and TBI elements that they bring home. Um, 
it's a good place to kind of revisit again. When you were in Central and South America, what were the things that you were seeing as far as the impact of drug prohibition and therefore obviously smuggling in the countries that you were working at? Well, I worked in seven special forces groups, so I saw a lot of it. I worked very closely with Colombian lanceros, jueces especiales, national police on drug raids, drug interdict Pablo's time. So it was a very sporty time when the FARC were starting to get the guerrillas of uh, Colombia were starting to get involved in the drug trade. And it was, I think for me, it was when I saw firsthand the inside of a, of a drug lab processing center in Colombia that was in triple canopy jungle. It was so big. It had a discotheque in it. There was a daycare center. And I thought, my God, like th- this is so much bigger than what we're able to handle. And I've always believed that. Uh, I, I do I do think there the interdiction and the work that was done down there was was useful. Um, but also I think that it was a massive problem that we probably didn't make a, a dent in. But I did see it firsthand and I, I certainly participated in it all the way up until 9-11-2001 when our focus shifted completely as a group to Afghanistan. Uh, but up until that point, man, I was deeply immersed in the counter-drug campaigns, more in the capacity building and combat advisory realm of the host nation militaries that were directly combating the uh, the narco guerrillas. So it was a bit of both counter-narcotic and counter-insurgency at the same time. And I think you saw the same thing in Afghanistan. I think you're seeing that everywhere now where the source countries and transient countries of drugs are melding with what were once kind of a purist ideology of of insurrection. You're starting to see now this, this merger of prime narcotics and um, insurgents. And it's a very nasty cocktail. Well, I think that's a really important pe- uh, point for people to understand. I mean, so many people, as I said, the last, the, the second half of this podcast that really started, you know, being able to share is like, yeah, th- this this terrorism that we're seeing, a lot of it is actually funded by the illicit drug trade. And as as a paramedic, I mean, you know, seeing the death and destruction and, you know, when you realize this all began in the 1930s, I've got family, as I mentioned, in in uh, Europe and Portugal actually decriminalized addiction in the year 2000. And the success they had in less than a decade, when you hold that alongside our quote-unquote war on drugs, I mean, it's night and day. And one is proactive and one is just simply creating law, which, you know, has cost us so much money and so much bloodshed. You know, not only the people on the streets, but also the people in the uniforms as well. So, me personally, and this is just my my take on it, I believe that it's time that we shifted to a different approach, maybe mirrored some of these countries that had success with decriminalizing addiction and making people with a mental health crisis a patient, not a criminal, because through the eyes of the soldiers and the law enforcement officers and the correctional officers and the paramedics and the firefighters and the doctors and the nurses of the world, the way we've been doing it for the last 80 plus years just isn't working. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. Um, it pains me to say it, you know, because it was a lot of years of my life and a lot of friends' lives. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. I think we need to take a step back. I don't necessarily know what the answer is either. 
uh, I kind of moved away from that world. If I'm being honest, uh, after 9-11, you know, I, I, I did not dive as deeply into the narco uh, trafficking and, 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 and narco terrorist world as I had. But, but I think you're right. I think there's definitely some paradigms that need to change. So before we get to 9-11 itself, an interesting lens as well, especially from a training and leadership point of view, is what preparation and training looked like prior to that and then what happened after. So I know a lot of the SEAL community talked about, you know, there's more like the jungle warfare training, those kind of things still going on. Um, now, obviously, apart from Bosnia and a few, um, you know, situations where it was in an urban context, you know, now you guys are fighting almost solely in, in cities now. So what did that look like through, through your unit's eyes? Well, I think, first of all, what I might do is differentiate a little bit between SEALs, Rangers, Delta, and SF, Special Please. Forces. Yeah. Um, and because this is an important distinction, and it, it'll help me with the answer that I give you. But typically speaking, you know, in U.S. Special Operations Command, you have a range of Special Operations units. You, and, and every service has them and then they all kind of form under us socom but the seals the rangers delta force the marine raiders for the most part are typically direct action units in other words they do surgical strike in and out in and off the target usually doing it unilaterally that's their mo uh, special forces are a little different in that we work by with and through indigenous people to help them stand up on their own so special forces can do unilateral strikes they have done them they can do direct action, but their, their specialty is to, is to build relationships and mobilize indigenous forces, whether those are regular forces like the Afghan commandos or irregular forces like an Afghan, a village of Afghan farmers through the village stability program that I wrote about in Game Changers. And that distinction is really important because what, what we carry into every conflict, or we should is a value of social capital, right? So Green Berets at their baseline, I say that a modern day Green Beret is a combination of John Wick, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, and the Verizon guy. In other words, they are relationship-based connectors who happen to be lethal, but only when it's necessary. And so that baseline capability of surgical lethality is always at the core. So what we did in Central and South America, we were constantly, if we were, if we were not combat advising down there, we were on the range training in the shoot houses, doing many of the similar things that the SEALs and others do, but we have to teach it as well. And oftentimes we have to teach it in the target language to a partner force. And that's just an important distinction because that is working with surrogates is what we should bring to every party. And if you look at the early days after 9-11, that's certainly what 5th Special Forces Group did. They brought the relationship. If you saw the movie Horse Sol uh, 12 Strong or you read the book Horse Soldiers by Doug Stanton, you know, that's what they did. 5th Special Forces Group went into Afghanistan shortly after 9-11 and they built relationships with the Northern Alliance and other Pashtun tribes and they mobilized them to fight and rout Afghanistan's uh, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Now, here's the thing that a lot of people don't know is 5th Special Forces Group at that time did not enjoy deep relationships with the Northern Alliance or the Pashtuns because we had not been in Afghanistan doing the kind of work we had done in Central and South America since like 1978. Because when our ambassador was killed in Afghanistan in 78, 
But, you know, and then the, the Soviet Union uh, came in and then you had all of this other stuff that followed the Civil War, the rise of the Taliban. There were no U.S. forces in that country. And so even the jawbreaker team that went in initially, the CIA pilot team, were a lot of retired dudes that were working with the Northern Alliance in the 70s because they were the only ones that had relationships. So when you ask, like, what was your training? There wasn't, you know, what we would typically bring to the party which were those pre-existing relationships. Um, for example, if you don't mind me going a little bit long on this answer, James, um, for example, how this can show up and what SF can bring to the party is when we invaded Panama during Just Cause, Third uh, Battalion, 7th Group was assigned and stationed in Panama along the Panama Canal. So they had been there for years. When the Armada came in and most of the Panamanian Defense Forces scattered into the countryside, Noriega was rolled up pretty quick, but those remnant forces were going to fight to the end. And they were going to launch these massive spearheads from the 82nd, the 7th Infantry Division, the Marines, the Rangers were going to go out and basically just root them out and do search and destroy missions. And the active duty SF guys in the country were like, we're going to be cleaning up that mess for the next 30 years. Let us give them a let us work a plan that we, we know these guys. So what they would do is they would fly small contingents of SF guys. Like, I'm not kidding, like maybe 20 to 30 guys. One group landed under Major Higgins near a school, an elementary school on Christmas Day. He walked over to a payphone because that's what they had back then, put a quarter, a dime in the payphone, called the Comandancia and to the Cortel leader and said, look outside your window. He had a stealth bomber drop a 500 pounder. He said, Surrender in 10 minutes or we're going to that's going to be your compound. And he did all this in Spanish. And the guy said, OK, so they jumped back on their Blackhawks, flew over to the soccer field where the entire brigade was lined up in stack arms. And they effected the surrender of the brigade without a shot fired. And this was called Operation Ma Bell. It happened all over the country. The entire PDF was demobilized by Green Berets who knew them and they just made phone calls. And. That is not an extreme example. There are versions of that in just about every conflict. And I think it's what special forces bring. We did not have that going into Afghanistan. But I have to give props to fifth group. They moved pretty fast. They built those relationships pretty fast. And they routed the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in less than 90 days, even without the pre-existing relationships. So I hope that makes the point is that what we do is very specific and it's usually by, with, and through an indigenous partner. And if we're not doing that, we're probably not optimized in doing the nation's best work. So I've had you know, several of your peers on the show. Um, obviously the term force multiplier comes up a lot. And, you know, so, you know, that's, uh, I think firstly, I mean, that's such an important concept and even just this podcast versus me being a firefighter riding an engine or a truck or an ambulance you know one call at a time i felt like this was my force multiplying moment by reaching thousands of people by interviewing people like yourself but also a common theme with a lot of the green berets um was just what you said that if they could if they could actually do afghanistan again and, and they were the decision makers that you would go in, that you would train up the you know the local forces, that you would definitely strategically remove some of the key leaders of the you know the the extremist groups, and then leave again. So what I, as a layman, as a citizen, didn't see was 
the diplomacy piece that you're talking about. There was a lot of, you know, mass forces sent in. We were having all our men and women coming back in coffins or missing limbs. So with the core values of the Green Berets, what was your, you know, what were your peers um, kind of perspective on how the conflict went from how it initially began to, to the next 20 years? There's a mixed bag right now on that, James. I will I will start by saying that I had a, an iconic Green Beret Master Sergeant say to me, he was a member of Pineapple. He said to me the other day, he said, if I had known how the United States would treat our Afghan partners on 9-12-2001, I never would have walked into the recruiting office and joined Special Forces. And I say that because there are a lot of my generation, Green Berets, who are very, very disillusioned and disheartened by what's happened in Afghanistan. So we'll get to that. But I think it's important to put that out there because that's who walked to the recruiting station. That's who on 9-11-2001 started these NCOs and officers started a 20-year journey, many of them. They're, we gave away our youth. We gave away our families. Some of us gave away our lives and our limbs, our sanity for a 20-year war that, frankly, the United States did not understand. And, fr and I don't think NATO did either. I don't think there, I think there was a level of hubris in how we approached Afghanistan. I think the Special Forces Regiment as well. We, we cannot sit back and claim that we had all the answers because we didn't. In fact, if you look at who we put in power, Dostum, Atta, these were warlords feared by the Afghan people in the rural areas, despised. They were made ministers immediately. Karzai. I mean, these were not pleasant people. These were not unifying people. These were not the people that the Afghans actually wanted to see put in power. And we didn't really take the time to see. We just grabbed the nearest warlords who helped us route the Taliban, and we put them into the ministries. And that's Scott Mann's opinion, but I don't think I'm alone in it. And it created an immediate gap between the government of Afghanistan and the rural people of Afghanistan, which is 80% of the country. And the Taliban, who were displaced to Pakistan, saw that. They saw that the United States was taking the same top-down approach as the Soviet Union had taken. They saw that we did not get the fact that it was a status society based in rural tribal dynamics versus a top-down central government. And so 20 years in, you had uh, U.S. special forces at the gates of the villages, but the Taliban were at the gates of Kabul and it was too late. So it was a fundamental mishandling and arrogant approach to trying to, to, to put a, a, a square peg in a round hole, to trying to forge some kind of preferred Western way of warfare onto a society that frankly, was not interested in what we were selling. And we could have stabilized that country and inhospitable to terrorism uh, by taking the local approaches that we started with. And then the village stability approach could have followed that where we worked in the rural areas. And basically the commandos, Afghan special forces, and a few others would have been the primary force. But we instead, we went the military industrial complex, man, 150,000 troops on the ground, um, creating a, 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 just a, a, a warfare state. Um, and um, we missed it. You know, we missed it. That's all I know to say. And you can, we'll be unpacking this for the next decades. But um, 
it was a big miss similar to the drug war. And um, I hope that we figure it out for the next time. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to to withdrawal and obviously the the allies that we left behind and what you were doing with Task Force Pineapple. Before we do, I'd love to kind of put a two-part question to you that I do with anyone who was deployed forward in combat. As a civilian, especially here in the US, I think this is the worst case, uh, we get a very polarizing view on our mainstream media, either the kind of kill them all, let God sort them out right wing one, or the they're all a bunch of baby killers left wing side. And in the middle are young men and women that, as you said, went to a recruitment office, signed on the dotted line, and then deployed forward to you know protect complete strangers and obviously protect their, their homeland as well. So regardless of the politics that put you in, you know, Afghanistan or obviously the events, were were there was there a moment either there or, or in Iraq where you realized that regardless of that politics that you witnessed, you know, events or atrocities towards you know, your soldiers, the 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 civilians of that land, that made you realize, okay, there are I can witness now firsthand there are horrible people that need to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of those horrible people were the Taliban because of their draconian rule and the way they treated women and stoned them in public and um, put their foot on the threat foot of the neck of local elders who were trying to, you know, just assert their autonomy in their village. But I also think you saw them in the unfortunately in the Afghan security forces, some of them. You saw them in the Afghan parliament. You saw President Ghani literally depart on you know, the day that the Taliban came into the city and left his people behind, there was, uh, you know, there, there were, there were different levels of, um, bad actors, right. Including in our military too. Uh, but I will say there was never a time James in my entire career in Afghanistan that I doubted why we were there. I never thought, Oh, we're in the wrong war or we shouldn't be. Here. I never thought that because as a green beret, I mean, I'm looking at the, the place where the worst terror attack on our planet happened emanated from. And, you know, we, we have an inherent responsibility to prevent that from happening again. And it was becoming very clear to me, like 10 years into this thing, I had gone into Afghanistan with, a, with an approach of retribution. Walk them down, the whole kill them all, let God sort them out. And most Green Berets felt the same way. We were pissed. We were pissed at what had happened. I lost my best friend in the Pentagon on 9-11-2001. So I wanted payback and I got it. But by 2000, there were more Taliban in the rural areas of Afghanistan than when we started. And that was when we knew we needed to get back to the basics. We needed to get back to working by, with, and through and, and living in these villages. And that's where village stability operations started. It was drawn from the program that SF had done with the Montagnards in Vietnam. And it was in that moment from 2010 to 2013 for me that I started to get a real view of Afghanistan at a rural level, a real view of Afghanistan at the local level. And I realized how much we were missing, that, that many of the Afghans had a view of relative stability that we did not. And, and if we could just listen and work by, with, and through over a couple of decades, that civil society in Afghanistan was as broken in the villages, maybe more than it was in Kabul. That most of the elders had been killed or displaced, and there needed to be new work on conflict resolution, low-tech farming, because all of these sources of instability were what the Taliban were exploiting. They were taking advantage of the very civil society shortfalls that this oral history society had enjoyed 
before the Soviets took it all down and the Civil War finished the job. And we missed that. We thought that if we just came rolling in and said, hi, I'm from the U.S., how do you like me so far? That these folks were turning to their villages would just, you know, work and thrive under a central government. And so I never felt like that, you know, the Taliban are some bad actors. And if you want to get a glimpse of it, look at how they're treating women and the remnants of the Afghan security forces today. Like it is, it is, it is probably the worst humanitarian event of our times. And so I never doubted that. My, what I doubted was our approach. What I doubt, what, what I felt, un, uh, you know, just more and more disillusioned with. And it's why I hung up the cleats in 2013 and retired as a lieutenant colonel. I'd already been selected for my next command. I just could not go any further with it. It's why I wrote the play Last Out. Like, it's why I wrote Game Changers, because it wasn't the fact, James, that we, that we were in the wrong place. I think we were in the right place. It was the how. It was how we were going at it, and it was our arrogance and hubris to think that we could just project a Western solution onto this very complex problem um, was misinformed, dangerous, and immoral. Well, that's something, again, from a complete layman civilian's eyes that that I find um, a complete paradox in the same way that our quote-unquote healthcare is basically a profit-driven system and therefore there's no incentive to make people healthier. I see the same with war and the industrial military complex. Of course, war has a place and I'm a huge advocate of the philosophy of walk softly but carry a big stick. As you said, with the John Wick element, even though he murders everyone because his dog died, <laughs> you know, that you need to have that aggressive, you know, violent response, but diplomacy needs to be held all the way up to that point. So what I struggle with is understanding when that is such a huge economic force where are the checks and balances to keep our young men and women away from combat until it's absolutely necessary? Or, as we just discussed, to make sure that when they go in, there's already an exit strategy in place. Well, and where's the accountability right now on how the war was prosecuted? You know, I, I'm pretty vocal about the mistakes I made in the war, and I, and I made quite a few. And, and I write about them in Game Changers. I talk about them pretty openly. Um, but I don't feel like as a society that we're, 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 we're holding the people who prosecuted this war accountable at all. They're like not even to a lessons learned level, the general officers in my assessment and admirals and senior, uh, enlisted advisors who prosecuted this war at the one star, two star, three star level and above for the most part, if they were CEOs in any corporation, they would have been fired. But yet we celebrate every single one of them. We do, not, we do not judiciously look at their record or what they did. Um, and they're still held in immensely high regard, surrounded by a tribe that is impenetrable. And I, I fear that it has created this insular environment where now we've got something going on in our military that is becoming a trend where we abandon our partners we walk away from the right moral thing in order to preserve one's career. And um, the absence of accountability on how Afghanistan was, was prosecuted is palpable. And I'm afraid it will follow us home. 
Well, it's funny because when you describe that, that reminds me of the last fire department I worked for, the very one before I did the same thing. I was like, all right, I can't do this anymore. I've tried for five years to to affect positive change. I'm swimming upstream the whole time. Um, and then sadly, I think in some first responder you know, agencies, it's the same same thing. You've got men and women on the ground floor who are have a burning desire to do the right thing, to train hard. And you have an administration that that pushes against every, you know, wellness initiative and training element and ownership. And and uh, the the number of messages that I get from people all over the country that adore their profession and, and want to serve, but their biggest opponent is the very agency they work for. It's true. And, and you know, I'm hearing it all over the place from the military right now as an institution from the inside, the disillusionment from, from the folks who fought in Afghanistan, the 800,000 plus veterans there, the Iraq war veterans. Um, we're looking at our leaders and there's such a dissonance between the leaders and the lead and they don't even get it. I had a two-star general who was largely responsible for the non-combatant evacuation in Kabul. When I told him the level of pain that our veterans were going through at the abandonment of the commandos and the Afghan special forces and the KKA, he looked at me with this blank stare. And then he said, huh, I really thought they would have been over that by now. And this was in February, you know, and the, the event happened in August and I just stared at him and I said, sir, they're not. And, and, but that's what I'm talking about. You know, I, I can't tell you the number of general officers who have said to me, I don't see what the big deal is. I really don't. I don't see why everybody's making such a fuss about this. We need to just move on. And these are the very people who taught us and beat into our heads. You do not leave a partner on the battlefield. Like you don't, you don't walk away from your partner. And yet they were the first ones to do it and then leave us holding the phone for the world's longest 911 call. And I'm not trying to get into that part right now, but I don't think you can distinguish this part of it because it is, it is the catalyst between what happened in Afghanistan, what's happening in Ukraine and what's going to happen beyond because it's a systemic problem of leadership, both on the political and military side. And if we don't get this figured out, and if we don't, as citizens, start demanding some answers, uh, I don't, I don't, I can't see this ending well. Well, I want to get into Task Force Pineapple and, and, and our allies. And like I said, I've had um, Fahim Fazlion, who was an actor, and he abandoned Hollywood for a couple of years and became an interpreter for the Marines. He was an Afghan native originally, but he was uh, in the U.S. Another guy, Wally, who now works for the Black Rifle Company, but um, he was an Afghan commando. So I've had some Afghani voices that were you know, deployed during that conflict. Um, before I get to what they did for us just one the other side of that initial question i asked you amidst this you know horrendous you know terrorism and 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 war there's always stories that come out of kindness and compassion so you know we, you, people a lot of times hear the worst case scenario the horror in your your career whether it was in the middle east or maybe even prior to that were there moments where despite a, a nation being terrorized by these extremist few that you saw, you know, kindness and compassion bloom from such a horrendous environment? Every, all the time. I mean, I'm sitting here right now because of the kindness and compassion of several Afghans who acted on several occasions when they didn't have to. And that's one of the reasons I think that my generation is so adamant about helping our Afghan partners is because we're here because of them, you know, and, and, 
it's not just one time for me, it was multiple times. And I also witnessed the heroism of both commandos, KKA, when the United States, a lot of people don't know this, the United States gave the reins over to the Afghan forces in 2014 to prosecute the war. And the Afghan special operations community took on 98.9% of that fighting and lost thousands and thousands of operators. And they never stopped fighting and they fought until the last bullet until the, to the, to the day Kabul fell, they were killing Taliban and, and trying to hold the line even after their generals and their president left the country. So I saw it so many times, James, I can't. And again, I put this in my play last out. I, I really highlight the relationship between my character, master Sergeant Danny Patton, a green beret fighting the entire war and an Afghan elder named Malik John. And they start out as arch rivals, as nemesis, and they end up becoming like a father and son. And you get to see on full display this kindness that this old man has and this love that he has for not just for Danny, but for his country, for his people and for the amount of pain and suffering that he's endured for that to still be present. And it was not represented in the media. Like you said, it was not represented in anything really you had to be there you had to be local you had to be in it to see it but when you did it was one of the most beautiful astounding things and those people have been through four plus five decades of nonstop suffering yet they 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 have so much in their hearts in so many ways for complete strangers and i don't know where they find it honestly except in their faith and i'm very very fond of them and love them dearly. And I can think of so many examples of where it showed up, but it's, it's the reason today that I think I'm not bitter and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, my heart is really full is because I had the opportunity to see the level of kindness and generosity on display in the worst of situations by both NATO soldiers and, um, and Afghans that I believe at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a better representation of, of who we are. Well, you talked about them actually, you know, being the combatants towards the end. Talk to me about other roles that they were filling to obviously enable us to to maximize our impact. And then let's transition to well, initially what you heard was happening to them once the withdrawal was complete. Well, there was, uh, you know, a, a lot of, my gosh, it was their country. And, I, you know, a lot of people say that the Afghans did not fight. They did not want to. It's just not true. There were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who willingly participated in this experiment called democracy and who, frankly, carried very heavy loads at great risk to their family and to them. And whether that was being a a female judge who prosecuted the Taliban or whether that was being a a, a national police officer or whether it was flying uh, in the Afghan Air Force or being a child who participated in a, you know, in an artistic project that that really pushed the envelope towards um, expression. There were so many who did that and particularly in Kabul and in the more urban areas, but you did see examples of it in the rural areas to some degree. But I think the institutions of security development and governance in Afghanistan, while fledgling and challenged and at times corrupt, there were people within them who really hung it out there and who continue to hang it out there and who are now are being hunted as a result of that. And we made in those cases, 
with the exception of the military, because they did not technically work for the U.S. government. But the others, you know, had a relationship to the government. We made an explicit promise to them through the special immigration visa program that we would get them to safety if they fell into duress. And we we broke that promise. And then there's an implicit promise to your 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 partners, your allies that you fight with, that you serve with, that you combat advise that I have your back and anyone in special operations or any, frankly, any community filled with danger knows that that is an implicit promise. Like, you know, you don't, you know, that politicians make dumbass choices all the time, but warriors should know that. And both explicit and implicit promises were broken. And it had a profound effect on the moral fabric of this country on August 15th, 2021. So, as you're watching this withdrawal happening, you know, there there obviously are so many people left behind. Talk to me about the genesis of Task Force Pineapple. So it started like so many of the other volunteer groups trying to help one friend, an Afghan commando named Nizam, who was now out of the army. He was guarding a power plant up in uh, um, Shebergan in the northern part of the country. And he was isolated and he had managed to displace to Kabul, hiding in his uncle's house like Anne Frank. And no way out. He had applied for an SIV a year past, had not been approved. And, you know, he was out of options. And the Taliban were peering in his window, sending phone texts to him saying, we know where you are. We're going to get you. His uncle telling him to leave because he was putting the family at risk. And for me, I had lost so many friends in this war. I had lost so much of my life in this war, so much of my family. I just thought, man, if I lose this dude, because I had known Nizam since 2010. We had done village stability operations together. He had gone to the Afghan Q course, to the U.S. Q course, the Special Forces Qualification course. He was truly part of our regiment, and we just flat out abandoned him. No, you know, and and if I thought if we lose this guy, I don't think I'm going to make it. I really don't. I don't know that I'm going to survive this. And so he became a manifestation of everything that I had invested in that country, and whether he lived or died was much bigger than just him. And uh, we put together a small team that tried to help him move across the country and get out. And we managed to do it. And then when we did, um, you know, we didn't take the Tim Kennedy approach and save our allies. They actually went in country. We leveraged relationships, pre-existing relationships inside the country. We made connections with people in the 82nd and the Marines that we knew. And we built underground railroads that allowed people to move through that way um, and be pulled in and then mobilized out. So that was our apparatus. And it was just different. You know, it, it, uh, I think Kennedy and his folks certainly pulled out more people. I think ours were more focused on knowing exactly who they were and presenting, you know, these highly vetted individuals, KKA, special ops, that kind of thing. Um, and then doing like a handoff, a responsible handoff to the people at the gate. So that was how that evolved. And after we got Nizam out, my phone just started blowing up from Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, SF friends who were like, hey, I'm trying to get my guy out. I heard you got Nassam out. And we just opened the aperture on our signal chat room. And we had been told to use the call sign code word pineapple by a diplomat inside the wire when we got Nassam. And so we thought, well, just call ourselves Task Force Pineapple. And that's how that whole thing. And then when we built the Underground Railroad, with the 82nd Airborne and, and some others, we started calling that, it got the name, the Pineapple Express. So that's the origins of those names. And we just kept working it 
Uh, we got several hundred assisted to extraction, maybe 700 before the bomb went off on the, the 26th of August. Amazing. Well, I know you've written a book about that. And I want to get that to a moment, but just you touched on something about not being able to deal with losing him. One thing I didn't ask you, there more often than not is such a jarring element to transition out of the universe uniform um, professions. You know, we have so many yeah. healing elements when we're there. We're obviously, you know, engaged fully in, in the, the danger element. We have yeah. you know, purpose. We have our tribe. We have a community. And then a lot of our men and women will find themselves sitting in an apartment, you know, away from everything and with time to now kind of dwell on all the things that were in their head, but they were too busy to, to process. What was your transition like back in 2013? Terrible. It was awful. I, I, um, I did a TED talk about it, actually, one of the hardest talks I've ever done. It called The Generosity of Scars. But I almost took my own life. I was sitting in a closet holding a 45 and on no intention of coming out and had my son not come home from school. I, I don't, you know, I don't know um, that I would have. And um, I had to go through a, a pretty, this was 18 months after I got out of the army in 2013. So I had to go through a pretty uh, challenging journey to, to find my way back to kind of the light. And I did, I started a nonprofit called the hero's journey. My path out was storytelling. I found that telling stories from that journey in the military into the civilian world was a bridge. And it, it really, it was healing. It allowed me to connect with the outside world and it was allowed me to employ myself. And I became a storyteller, a warrior storyteller, as I say, and I loved it. And I've, our nonprofit does that now. It's why I wrote the play last out. Um, I found that storytelling for me was an immense where psychedelic drugs work for some people uh, art and other things work for others. Uh, being a playwright and a storyteller was my, my path out. And I've tried to help others leverage that as well, but it was not a good process at the time. There weren't a lot of things in place to help. And, um, I've tried to dedicate my life, at least a big chunk of it to helping first responders and veterans and military family members not go down the road. I went down and, uh, and, and connecting them to resources. But storytelling is my primary way to do that. Yeah, well, obviously, that's a huge element of, of this as well, you know, and I actually wrote a book about 18 months ago and, and really felt for the first time the catharsis of storytelling. And mine wasn't, it wasn't a biography or anything, um, but it was more short stories with takeaways on mental health, on injury and all these other elements that we deal with. But I heard you touch on... Um, this concept, I think it was with um, Ryan on Order of Man, but I had Sebastian Junger on the show and he dove into the power of, you know, tribalism and, and how healing storytelling is to the returning warrior and how we've, we've lost that pretty much from the, you know, the Vietnam era onwards. So what have you seen with your own eyes, not only in yourself, but in all the people that have gone through your program? It's amazing. It's transformative. I, you know, I was working with a combat infantryman named Chris Vetzel, who was blown up and buried alive in his vehicle and had to dig himself out with his bare hands. And we brought him to one of our story exchange workshops and he was working with story coaches and we had the trauma interventionist right there. And the story was literally stuck in his throat, you know, and he just, we went through all kinds of machinations, to, but, but he got that story out. And now years later, he is a story coach. He tells that story from the stage and this guy, like when he walks in a room, he just owns the room and he has so much power because he's taken that, that scar 
that you know was the trauma and he's 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 repurposed it into the service of others and the generosity in that and the reciprocity that comes from that i believe that our first responders our veterans and our military families and our first responder families are probably some of the greatest national treasures that we have their their lived experience the wisdom and their lived experience is so much what our nation needs right now and i believe that pineapple and the other volunteer groups were a representative of that when everything went to shit you saw these veterans and, and their families and Gold Star families jump into the fray when they knew they were outgunned. They knew they were outclassed. They knew that bomb was going to go off. But yet they, they got in there and they did their best. And, you know, Americans responded to that. The world responded to that. And I think that kind of lived experience, that wisdom is contained in so many of our warriors. But yet we have this fucked up notion that somehow because we served, we're supposed to suffer. You know, and, and, and that's just not, I don't, I just don't subscribe to that. And I believe that storytelling is our way out of that. I believe it is our outlet. I believe it is our bridge to the outside world where we can change planets and transcend those two worlds and really be generous with our scars. It's hard, but I think it's probably one of the most important things we can do. And in the, in the process, heal ourselves. Yeah, well, I mean, just the, the metrics of this podcast, I'm the same guy yapping away on this end. And if it was just me monologuing, I don't think this podcast right. would have got very far at all. But here we are now, six years in, three and a half million people have pressed play. So if oh, that boy. doesn't tell you the power of storytelling from a from a, an unknown firefighter that just happens to be sick of going to funerals and starting to interview people, and here we are now. And I think the that I, the message that I see in the fire service, you know, when, when people transition out, they go work in a fire academy. It seems like a lot of the military, especially in the special operations arena, they'll go to contracting. And I think both of our professions have to understand the, the diverse spectrum of skills that we actually have that if we apply creatively into the, the real world, we don't have to have a gun or a hose in our hand anymore. We can inspire in so many other ways. It's the platform. We've never had access to people the way we do right now. Never. And I'll give you a quick example on my side. I've done three TED Talks in my life. I did one in 2017 called Rooftop Leadership. It has like 100,000 views talking about how we led in Afghanistan and how we can lead here at home. I did another one called Surrounded on Purpose, just giving the, the, the audience a sense of what it means to be in a village as an SF team. And then I did one called The Generosity of Scars. It's the newest one I did in 2018. And I talked about my bout with suicide and how I overcame it through storytelling. It's got over a million views. The other ones have 5,000 and 100,000 respectively. So you tell me, I mean, like it, 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 not only do we have access to the platforms, but the lived experiences, particularly the tough ones, are the things that people crave and will respond to and frankly need. It's what makes you relatable to people. And um, it's all about tapping into that and putting it in that narrative vehicle to serve others. Well, one more area before we go to, to the book. Through my lens again, when I watch you know, the last few years of, of administrations, I see almost what would be the polar opposite of what I'm understanding that a, a Green Beret does, which is a, a, a wedge, a cleaving of a nation, you know, dividing rather than unifying. What is your perspective? Not so much from a political view, but just, just as a nation, as a people, what, what do we need to do collectively to reverse some of the damage that appears to have been happened the last few years? Oh, man, that's a great question. I, um, I call it... So there's a great book. 
it's a long book, but it's by Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone. And he's also got a book called The Upswing. But Putnam is a social scientist and he basically says that America, one of the things that America and certain countries in the West have, well, there's three, there's three things that, that every successful democracy needs to, to survive is you need to have strong social capital, what Putnam calls bridging trust, where we bridge beyond our in-groups and our out-groups and our individualism. Uh, you need to have institutions that you can believe in that everybody believes in. And you need to have stories that you tell yourselves and others that are, that are prominent. And if you don't have those, then the democracy is really going to be challenged. And I believe that we have lost our way on all three of those. And um, I believe that leaders are responsible for preserving our social capital, the institutions we can believe in, and the narratives that we tell ourselves. They're supposed to be the stewards of that. They're supposed to bridge and help us live into out of many come one and things like that, the principles of our democracy. Instead, what they've done, though, is they've abandoned their post and they've surrendered to a easier more attractive way to lead, which is in-group, out-group leadership or bonding trust, where you foment instability, you foment division in order to advance the agenda of a narrow group. And it doesn't matter what that is. What I've learned in my tribal dynamics work over the years with as a Green Beret working in areas that are divided and tribal is if you do that, you create this environment rather than this bridging trust environment where we all kind of unify under one vision, one narrative, one myth. You create this shadow tribalism, this factioning, where now these different in-groups and out-groups are competing for resources and status. And that's, what, that's how it ends. And, and the way that ultimately ends is violence and societal collapse or organizational collapse. And you don't have to look far to see it. And we need to clean house on the leadership front, clean house. We need, we need to put in, install leaders who have a bridging mindset, who are going to get beyond one's in-group and one's rigid ideology. And I am much, as a Green Beret who has seen a lot of social turmoil, I think we should focus less on the issues as leaders and more on how we treat each other as we handle the issues, because that's what's going to take us out. It is not going to be the issues that take us out. It is going to be how we treat each other with what younger, who I have a lot of respect for, calls contempt normally reserved for one's enemies. That's where we're going to go down. And right now, I don't see many leaders that are even, not only are they not adhering to that, they're actually going the other way and they're fomenting instability using this divisionist approach. And it is very dangerous. Yeah, well, just again, my layman observation to me, the way we choose leaders is completely broken. I, I call it demistocracy. Like you have to be a millionaire to play the game and you have yeah. to have no ethics to, to bow down to the lobby groups that are telling you how you're going to run your office. So the only way I think that we can find the real leaders of which we all know 100 people who would be amazing at the job will be to, as you said, control, alt, delete the actual system of choice now that we have this amazing, you know, network that we can use to bring everyone into voting and actually create an environment where if you have the potential to be a good leader, whatever your background, that you can actually play. Agreed, man. Agreed. And, and that's an inherent responsibility of citizens. We can't outsource the responsibility to anybody else anymore. 
Now, just one point before we transition to the closing questions. Um, you talked about trust and you just touched on Ukraine for a second. The abandonment of our allies. What? How is that going to play into effect in, in future countries that we engage with? Well, I mean, we're not going to be facing China or Russia or even Al-Qaeda or ISIS-K unilaterally. I don't think anyone with any sense of foreign policy or national security believes that. We're going to work with surrogates and partners. And right now, all they have to do when we say, hi, I'm from the United States, I'd like to work with you on facing X threat, they'll just raise an eyebrow and say, Afghanistan? You know, I mean, that's one. So we've put our entire by, with, and through capacity at risk. Uh, not to mention the fact if there is a catastrophic strike by ISIS in the next three to five years, which is very likely, we're going to load up our C-17s with the next crop of young men and women with the country music songs and the Budweiser commercials in full effect, go back into Afghanistan, except this time you're not going to have the Northern Alliance and a Pashtun tribesman waiting on you when you roll your parachute up. You're going to have a pissed off commando in full kit, full array, M4 kitted out that was left out to dry, who may have very easily been co-opted. And now that's who my kid's going to meet, right? And who's going to explain that one at the next 9-11 commission? You know, I, I, that's the kind of shit that just, it just, I cannot believe we're that short-sighted that we got hit so hard on 9-11 because we didn't have a ground network. We didn't have relationships. We didn't have any kind of social capital in that country. We fought, bled, and died for it for 20 years, gave our youth away for it for 20 years, and then walked away from it cold. You know, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's unfathomable to me, man, that, that, that we've done this. I think, I mean, it's horrendous, and I've heard so many different voices. You know, just, just now, today, I just released um, Will Jimeno, who was one of the two Port Authority police officers that was pulled from the, re the wreckage of the World Trade Center. You know, so that's that's boots on the ground. I've got so many firefighters from FDNY that responded to right. that. You know, and then, obviously, all the men and women of, of every single branch, whether it's, you know, U.S., Australian, right. British, and they all gave everything for this. And we we owe them, if nothing else, to make sure this never happens again. 100%, but we haven't done that. We have already, we have already, and this is what I talk about in the book, we have already set that train in motion. Well, let's talk about the book then. So Operation Pineapple Express, um, tell me about it and then we can talk about where you can find it. Yeah, so it, uh, it's, it's a book. I, you know, there's several books coming out. Uh, Tim's already got his book out. I think in the last chapter, he talks about what they did and you know, kudos to them. Man. It's an amazing, amazing group of people. Um, my book is, a, I think it's a little different, James, in the sense that it's written in the third person. It is called Operation Pineapple Express, and it's focused on really the Afghans who risked everything for freedom and the volunteers who stood at their shoulder to honor that promise. That's it. And it's, but it's written in the third person. It's not me writing it in the first person saying, here's what I did. Or, you know, it, it is, it, it literally, there are multiple characters in this book who are protagonists from the 82nd Airborne to a, a former Green Beret turned school teacher named Zach, whose hero was Harriet Tubman and created the Pineapple Express, to Hasina Safi, who was the Minister of Foreman, uh, Women's Affairs and waded through a waist deep shit canal to get to freedom with her family. It's told through their eyes, through their lens. And the whole idea here is that when you read this, you're going to have a bird's eye view of, again, the men and women who risked everything for freedom and the veterans and volunteers who supported them. That's my goal. And when you're done, it's, I guarantee it's a story you probably haven't heard and a perspective, a point of view you didn't have. 
And my goal really is to get Afghanistan back in the conversation again. At the end, there's an epilogue where I go pretty heavy on accountability and what we need to do. But um, yeah, that's it. And and if we can, if we if this can help people care about the Afghan people and the veterans who are so damaged by this um, through this moral injury, then it was worth it. And I and I and I really hope, and I think it will, because these characters and these stories are so compelling. Uh, it's hard to put it down. Beautiful. And, that, and when's the release date for that? August 30. Uh, it's on Amazon now for pre-order. Simon & Schuster is the publisher. I read the audiobook myself, 21 characters that I had to use my limited acting ability to try to give the voices to these folks. And uh, But uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be on Amazon Prime. Excuse me. It's going to be on Amazon on August 30th for release, but it's already on there right now. Brilliant. Now, what makes you unique as well? I mean, many people have been on here that, that have a book but not many people wrote a play and then had that yeah. play filmed and made into a film and yeah. acted in it themselves. So talk to me about that whole project. Yeah, it's called Last Out Elegy of a Green Beret. I, and a lot, for a lot of the things that we've talked about here, I felt like most Americans didn't really understand what was going on in Afghanistan. They didn't, and this was before the collapse, but if you watch it, you'll think we wrote it after the collapse, but we just saw what was coming, that's all. Um, but I just was determined to try to use storytelling and art as a way to convey to the American people what was happening in Afghanistan. And, and we always see the movies and the books about the first in, the door kickers, but we never hear about the last out, the men, the women, the families who go again and again and again, day after day, month after month, year after year. And I wanted to tell that story. So it's about a it's a composite character, three team sergeants who I lost in combat uh, named Master Sergeant Danny Patton. And he's killed in the first scene. And he's, been, he's trying to ascend to the warrior resting place of Valhalla, but he's holding on to something and he can't let go. So his best buddy, Kenny, comes down from Valhalla, who was killed in the Pentagon on 9-11 based on my ranger buddy. And he brings several operators with him who are shapeshifters. And what they do is they become the people in Danny's life who made his heart pump the most blood. They take him through his life where he went to selection, where he got married, where he had his child. He meets his arch nemesis, Colonel Smith, Malik John. And you go with Danny on this journey through the 20-year war until he figures out what he's holding on to and he lets go and ascends. Uh, it's a story of hope, redemption, but it also is a white knuckle ride, man. And it's all veterans in the play. So all combat veterans. And um, you feel as if you've been to combat after that play. It's on Amazon Prime, Google TV, Apple TV, and Vudu. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Yeah, I got. I saw the the trailer for it, and it looks absolutely I hope fascinating. You like it. I hope you and all the proceeds go to our nonprofit to help warrior and first responder storytelling. It's a straight up five hundred one c three nonprofit project. So, uh, by just watching the film, you're helping us build storytelling capacity into our first responders and veterans. Fantastic. All right. Well, then the first of the closing questions, your your book, obviously, Operation Pineapple Express is coming out. Game Changers was the first one. Are there yeah. any other books written by someone else that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. I think Tribe by Sebastian Younger is a must read right now. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, it's a it's a really important book to read. Um, trying to think if there's The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield is another great one. Um, talking about negative energy, self-sabotage, and resistance as we try to meet our goals. Um, I use that one a lot. Those would be my, my two. Beautiful. Well, you wrote a play and you know made a film from that play. What about films and or documentaries that you love? Um, I love 12 Strong. I think um, 
if you if you haven't seen it, I would recommend watching that. I think it's a really uh, beautiful movie. Um, I know Save Our Allies has got a documentary out now on what they did. I would recommend checking that out. And um, yeah, I think those. Oh, I'll give I, I'll throw a plug to my dad, uh, Rex Mann. If you if you look up Rex Mann, um, an American tragedy. It's his TED talk at seventy three years old after a bout with cancer on saving the American chestnut. If you want to see a storyteller in action, a fi- an old firefighter in action in the red circle, you should definitely watch this talk. Beautiful. I will. Thank you so much. And I'll put the links to those in the, the show notes. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Um, yeah, let's see. Um, I don't know if you've had Ben Owen on from Black Rifle. He's amazing. I have um, not. Yep, he's really, really great. Um, Travis Peterson is another from uh, Moral Compass Foundation. And I think Dr. Don Wood, a resilience expert uh, who does a lot of work with trauma, would be great to have on for you guys. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I had um, so Fahim Fazli, the uh, Afghani, he was in 12 Strong. So yeah. one one story I haven't really got to tell is that one on here. Do you know of any of the men who are you know vocal about that particular um, operation? Uh, I, yeah, Mark Mark Nooch is a friend of mine, and I can get you connected to Mark. I bet Mark would come on. He he's he is he is he is four and twelve strong. <laughs> he's the captain. Okay, uh, doesn't look anything like that. But if I could connect you to Mark, that'd be a good one. He he's great, and he just his book just came out. His version of what happened, and I think you'd really enjoy having him on. Perfect. Yeah, the timing is great. Then if I can help him promote as well. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, hook me up. And uh, let's hit me up separate and we'll, we'll get you connected to him. Fantastic. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows to find, you know, all the different sites and, and work that yeah. you have. What do you do to decompress these days? I do a lot of uh, acting uh, on my play. We're getting ready to put the play back on, hopefully with the Gary Sinise Foundation this year. And we're going to travel. Uh, I do a lot of storytelling, diamatic, diaphragmatic breathing. Uh, the book Breathing for Warriors by Dr. Belisa Varanich, V-R-A-N, you may know her, uh, O-I-C-H, I think. Um, it's a great book, and I use a lot of her techniques to uh, recover. Yeah, I actually had her on the uh, the podcast. I forget the number now, but uh, yeah, amazing, amazing woman. Awesome. All yeah. right, well, then the very last thing then. So where can people find The Hero's Journey, Rooftop Leadership, and any other areas you want to lead them to online? Yeah, so we're building our website right now, scottman.com. It should be up real soon. But in the meantime, if you go to lastoutplay.com, if you want to learn about the play, if you go to um, the uh, heroesjourney.org, my boy's being silly there, <laughs> the, the heroesjourney.org is our nonprofit. And then uh, rooftopleadership.com is my uh is my not my for-profit leadership company. So all of those will be on scottman.com coming out real soon though. Beautiful. Well, Scott, I just want to say thank you so much. I know you're kind of concluding a, a family get together. So I want to let you get back to your loved ones before you depart. But I truly appreciate you being so generous with your time today. No, thank you so much, James. I really appreciate it. I'm going to get back to them. They're going to be rolling out pretty soon, but I appreciate you having me on, brother. <laughs>